Good morning, afternoon, and evening, everyone. My name is Alex Terpkosh, and this is Tonal Identities. Whether you are here to listen to new music, understand how our lives impact our musical identities, I hope you enjoy the show. Joining me today is a lovely oboe, English horn, recorder, and probably some that I'm missing player, Natalie Johnson. Hello and welcome. Hi, it's an honor to be chatting with you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so to start off, are there any other instruments that I didn't mention there that you do (laughs) play now? Um, no. Well, I, <laughs> I actually started out originally as uh, kind of considering myself primarily a soprano, um, but I also compose. Uh, I do that actively, but singing not so much in public anymore. <laughs> all right. All right. Hey, more power to you. I can't sing. So respect <laughs> that. Um, so first question, what's your first memory of music? So my first memory of music actually landed me in the hospital um which I'm not joking (laughs) so um I was learning piano from my mom from a really really young age I was probably like two years old or something like that and um at some point as a toddler was practicing without my mother in the room and I was swinging my legs back and forth on the uh, the pew that I was sitting on and somehow um flipped forward and broke my chin open onto the piano (laughs) Um, And I ended up in the hospital, got stitches that you can actually still see to this day. Um, But I want to think that I love music enough that even after it maimed me, I returned to it. (laughs) I was going to say that's that's very um, like tragic and kind of traumatic, but it was a little rude. It's okay. (laughs) So I guess other than that, for I mean, experience, what's your (laughs) primary like instrument or background? Um, and do you have any like parental influence too? Yeah, so um, I grew up from, um, in a really, really musical family. My mom um, currently is a choir and teacher, a piano teacher, and uh, also plays the French horn. Um, and my dad is a classical guitar- guitarist. Um, is also dabbled in flute. Um, and both of my siblings also are in music. Um, but yeah, both of my parents played a really wide array of music. My mom is probably a little bit more true to classical music, but my dad especially will listen to literally anything. Uh, one of my more wholesome first <laughs> memories with music uh, was back when he was a janitor way back in the day. Um, he'd play Fleetwood Mac and Bob Marley back to back and not bad an eye at the vibe shift. Um, but I'm so grateful for that now. Um, because I was exposed so consistently uh, to such a wide array of music and also classical um, consistently. And I'm so grateful for that now. Do you um, think that kind of shaped some of your interest in like composers or like even artists? Or did that eventually like kind of delve into something else, like a different genre that you enjoy more than what you grew up with? Yeah, I think it made me a lot more open minded to music. Um, something that I do a lot nowadays is playing contemporary ensembles and I'm asked to do such weird things but I think because I grew up with so much uh, different music it's more comfortable Um, yeah but I think I still do have a very special place in my heart for classical music um, because that's what I we probably listened to the most growing up Um, yeah is there any jazz around you or Primarily. Yeah, my brother, I uh, was a jazz musician. Um, my dad listened to some jazz too. Um, 
yeah, there are definitely some jazz influences in there and rock and uh, like I said, reggae. Uh, my dad also listens to uh, part of my heritage is uh, indigenous Swedish. So Sami people. So we would listen to yoiking is what it's called, too. <laughs> um, and a lot of just different stuff like that, stuff that you wouldn't put on the same concert. But I appreciate it. <laughs> that's that's kind of awesome. And I, hey, honestly, with where we're leading in music, maybe it will be put on the same concert sooner than later. Cause... I would love that. That would be great. <laughs> We got to keep people entertained somehow. Right, right. <laughs> All right, so we'll get started here with some medieval. So this is a very, very short little curie from John Ireland. It's titled The Communion Service in C Major. It's only a minute so you might hear it a few times over and over it's the lincoln cathedral choir but i think this at least for the podcast purpose is just a good start into pulling music back into an earlier time period to figure out kind of where we came from and where classical music kind of lies now um, in some of my classes i've had to study like beethoven and haydn now and it brings you much more appreciation for where we have gotten and there's still very, very beautiful works like this that are coming out even like hundreds of years after the Kyrie was first born. Um, John Ireland was born in 1879 and died in 1962. And he's from Cheshire. So still like only a couple hundred years ago that he wrote this. And it's just beautiful. I think John Ireland is such an underrated composer. He's incredible. And I, I mean, I completely agree with that. I, you, the name's familiar, but you, I don't think you see many works by him. Mm-hmm. And so something that blew my mind is he moved to London at 14 and he entered the Royal College of Music as a composition student and his fellow peers included Vaughn Williams and Holst. So he was definitely around some very, very <laughs> smart people. And something else that just like because I knew nothing about John Ireland before this mm-hmm. is he was always so critical of everything and so he actually destroyed all of his works that he composed before the age of 24. That is tragic. Yeah so his catalog started at, in 1903 which is just I like you just wonder like it was probably still amazing but you know right that it was There's bad. 25 years of music gone. <laughs> and so um there's in regards to like the Kyrie itself, there's three sections of this chant, Kyrie eleison, Christe eleison, Kyrie eleison, meaning Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. And it's just the very bare bone of the Kyrie, and I just chose this one because I think it's set so beautifully with the <laughs> harmonies that he, he chose. I wish it was longer. <laughs> I, yeah, I completely agree with that. I actually, I, I don't think I've listened to like the full cycle, but of that he has done. But I just thought this was a really pretty curie. Mm-hmm. All right, so we will continue on to your first one. So uh, the music that I picked uh, for this evening um, was all music that I return to when I'm having a 
a tough time or getting frustrated with music, usually these pieces can kind of remind me uh, why I got myself into this field and why I want to share music with other people. Uh, so this is uh, titled Attaboy. It is uh, by the Goat Rodeo Sessions Project uh, featuring Yo-Yo Ma, Edgar Mayer, Stuart Duncan, and Chris Thiele. Um, this music was introduced to me also by my dad, uh, as I previously stated. Listen to a huge array of music and I'm so grateful for that because it brought me uh, works like this. Um, but the Goat Rodeo sessions were named after the term Goat Rodeo, referring to chaotic events where a lot needs to go correctly in order for it to work. Um, so this project, as you can hear, blends bluegrass and classical in such a cool way and features four absolutely incredible musicians um, and such complicated but really, I think, stunning music. Um, this music for me is just so scenic and joyful and so vibrant. When I, I don't listen to this before I get on here, but I saw Yo-Yo Ma and I was like, this is very... Yeah, like like you said, bluegrass. I was just surprised. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's so different. It's and you know his uh, Silk Road ensemble stuff that he does there too. Um, Yo Yo Ma, I think, is just a pioneer um, in terms of just exploring so many genres of music. Even though he has a classical foundation in it. I mean, I think it's very inspirational, right? You know that he's mm -hmm. able to still expand his field, right? He, he never... Because oftentimes people are like, oh, I'm a jazz music, musician or a classical musician, but why be limited when you could just jump across the genre just because you can play the instrument itself? Mm-hmm. He also, um, he has an Audible original out. I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, um, but he talks a little bit about um, his collaborations with all different types of musicians and like you said it's so inspiring uh, just his viewpoint on being a musician and a person too i just like like because this is just such a different concert setting too it's not like a concert hall you know like you could just go to a a bar and there's just a little quartet except there's an yeah. upright bass and a cello <laughs> right <laughs> and sometimes i wish that classical because the classical music used to have that vibe i wish wish we had a little bit of that vibe again <laughs> We got some big works to, to cover, but that I know. is <laughs> so surprising and lovely. I did Isn't not that expect that. <laughs> so thank you. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Starting off to a little bit of uh, classical music here. This, tasty. I know, I know. First of all, this is like, it's a beautiful beginning, just uh, two clarinets. And so this is Prokofiev's third piano concerto in C major. This is the first movement that I'll be showing, um, the Andante Allegro. The conductor is Dario Alejandro Ntaka. 
and the ensemble is the Singapore Symphony Orchestra. What a shift from the open, the opening. That's so cool. And listening to this over and over again, something that I realize is how much of a conversation this concerto is and how much the piano doesn't, it doesn't play well with the orchestra or the rest of the orchestra in terms of like, it's aggressive towards it when it communicates where it's trying mm -hmm. to overpower the orchestra and like fight with it rather than <laughs> be in terms with it. Yeah, they definitely sound in conflict. So as this continues, take note of like the piano will basically change the role of the orchestra. Well, pretty much just like the theme, you know, like every song has theme and development, but this just does a completely mood shift. Yeah, I know it's like it's kind of, it's kind of silly. Like it's it's I so love it. explosive, and then it just like goes to like this little joke section. But so this is actually the fastest I've ever heard this concerto be played, um, this recording at least. And then also the pianist is Martha Argerich. Probably butchered that, but just watching concertos. Through, like a recording or live is just so much different than listening to it because the technique especially when you watch piano it's so physical you can see how fast they're moving and mm. not saying that you can't get that out of other instruments but <laughs> piano is just very physical in terms of like how much bass you have to move pianists scare me a little bit the amount that they're having to juggle just in general um plus the music that they're given is not fair well, it's like they walk on stage and there's, they're like, let's take the top off the piano because they don't need music. It's like, how? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> All right. We're going to move on. That piece uh, for the listeners is 33 minutes, and that was only four of it. So would recommend. Awesome. Let's move a little bit further in terms of era. So in uh, the spirit of genres, uh, here's one of my favorite songs by the legendary Eunice Wayman, better known as Nina Simone. Um, so she grew up during the Jim Crow era as an African-American woman in North Carolina and was on track to be a classical concert pianist, but was so unfortunately barred from an education at Curtis, actually, due to what is believed to be racism. Um, so in order to make a living, she started playing at a nightclub and to hide from her family that she was playing, quote, the devil's music, changed her name to Nina Simone. Um, so she started playing cocktail piano tunes and uh, 
was playing music like this, but was told that she would be fired unless she started to sing alongside her playing. Uh, and this is effectively what launched her career. And um, although I don't think you hear her singing in the snippet that um, I picked, but she has this incredible contralto voice that will just melt your soul. Um, but I picked this excerpt because you can so clearly hear that she is essentially the second coming of Bach. It's just a fugue. Um, somehow in the middle of this, ja this jazz piece she lays down, this amazing fugue that um, feels so right but so wrong. Um, and something that she also uh, told everyone around her was that, uh, you know, she got so famous and ended up playing at Carnegie Hall and was telling everyone that she should have been up there playing Bach. And I want to thank that um, in a way she did. This is like blowing my mind right now because there's still, you've got that like that bass and that drum backbeat. Yep. But it's, it's like, it is, it's literally just Bach, but it's like yep. jazz somehow. Mm -hmm. Um, and for anyone interested in Nina Simone or her music, uh, the documentary, I think it's on Netflix, uh, it's called What Happened Miss Simone. I think everyone and their mother should watch it. It talks about her life, um, her music, and her civil rights activism. And it is so tragic, but it's so inspiring. Um, bring tissues. It's great. <laughs> It's almost like, you know, like you said, she was told she like had to sing, otherwise she'd be fired. But it, it feels like, you know, it was meant to be. <laughs> and going back to talking about how pianists horrify me, she's accompanying herself while she's singing, which the amount of complex you know, stuff she's playing on the piano and singing so gorgeously at the same time just blows my mind. It's crazy because when when did when did this come out around? Do you know? Yeah, um Oh gosh, this one, I want to say, I somehow did not write that down. Let me look that up really quick. It was in 1959. Yeah, yeah. So it's, what? wow, now I have to do math. 59 to 20, was 80 years? 80 years? <laughs> and so, I mean, she had the skill to like, I'm just like still thinking about the fugue. To like put the fugue in the middle of the piece and like we don't hear that kind of like merging like at least right now in the era we're in like we have our like a whole new genre of like electronic and mm -hmm. um like funk and neo-funk and stuff like that but there's nothing not nothing but not a lot converging a lot of these different genres together yeah if you're listening to this go do that <laughs> we could use more of it yeah she's a force all right, let's go to a really short but amazing film piece.
So this is Aftermath by Daniel Pemberton. And he wrote the score to Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. I would not have guessed that this was Spider-Man. Yeah, the music for Into the Spider-Verse has gotten... It's just so... It's just an incredible thing. And the solo that's coming up is so... And so being from a movie, that's the whole piece. Like, that's just a part that happens within the movie. And I'll just start it again at the beginning. But I chose this because film music is being much more sought after with the recent trend in orchestras playing, like, live or, like, the soundtrack in concert with, like, the live film. And there's been incredible composers being recognized for this stuff. And there's also com incredible composers in the past but personally, like five years ago, I could name John Adams and Hans Zimmer, but now there's so many more that are like coming forward because I think people are starting to care more and listen more to what's actually behind the setting. I'd argue that probably the most frequently that the public is exposed to quote classical music is through movies. Um, and this is so beautiful. I would love to hear this live. And it's even just how, yes, he scored the whole piece, but every second is so carefully created. Like, this is only a minute and 20 of, like, a two-hour movie. Mm. And it pulls this much emotion out of it in itself, even without the cinematography on top of it. So anyways, I just think That's it's amazing. beautiful. And so Pepper, yeah, it's just, I don't know. I just think it's crazy how some people are able to compose these short spurts or and this like this orchestration is so small just strings and like a little bit of brass and some woodwinds and it's just i don't know it's crazy mm -hmm. how people are able to create this win without like a ton of density and pemberton also wrote music for enola holmes birds of prey an episode of black mirror called uss callister and he wrote oh. the music for little big planet one and two the video game Awesome. Yeah, so these people are out there. You just got to find the name because it's really mm -hmm. easy to remember like directors and main actors, but go go find who actually wrote the music if you enjoy it. All right. Onwards to, I've actually never heard this piece you chose before. So for those at home who don't really know what they're hearing right now, uh, that is uh, called a scratch tone on all of the string instruments. So this piece is called Fountain of Youth by Julia Wolf. Um, it was written in 2019 by, uh, as I said, Julia Wolf, who is a Pulitzer Prize winning composer um, who is Apparently, the theme is genre. 
who is renowned for her genre-bending music that often inhabits rock and minimalism alongside clearly classical. Uh, the way I was introduced to this piece was actually getting to play it when Julia Wolf did a residency with us at Northwestern. Um, it was an amazing experience, and I'm so grateful that I got to be exposed to her music and to her, and I get to work with her. But this piece just really intrigues me um, for its soundscape and how moody it is. And I really love music that makes me feel strong emotions. And the first couple of times of hearing this, I felt pretty scared, which was great. <laughs> And this piece was commissioned for the New World Symphony. Um, and I think that Julia Wolf's program notes that she wrote really speaks for itself. Um, she says, people have searched for the fountain of youth for thousands of years. The thought that if you bathed in or drank from the fountain of youth, you would be transformed, rejuvenated. My fountain of youth is music. In this case, I offer the orchestra a sassy, rhythmic, high energy swim. And that uh, high energy part, you can hear a little bit more towards the ending but definitely hear spurs of it throughout. I can't even say much because there's so much happening. It's so- I know. Like, <laughs> it's so interesting. And also for the listeners, there's the, what Natalie mentioned, the scratch tones, but that's also, that's a washboard. That like clicking, it's like triangle beaters on a washboard. That's that other scratching sound. <laughs> The way we had it set up in our concert hall too is we have these risers and uh, we had some of the washboards on the ground and some of them up and it was so, it just felt like that scratching was everywhere. It was so cool and so freaky. And this is, I mean, this also feels like a, like almost a film score piece with how, um, I don't know the word, but drawn out all of it is, right? Like it feels very mm -hmm. timed. It's very invocative. I don't know if that's a word, but it just is a really clear scenic picture that it paints. for a little bit um, so we can catch the back end of this. Mm -hmm. I love what she does with the horns here. Was it ever easy to like get lost playing this? Oh, it was, it was horrific. <laughs> and half of the time I didn't know, I guess, um, playing this piece, was it the actual content we were playing that was making me anxious or uh, getting off? Because there's also a lot of, uh, you'll hear in a second, a lot of really rhythmic stuff that has to be together. And if it gets off by a millisecond, you're just screwed. <laughs> this part, yeah. I feel for every player in the ensemble. 
<laughs> oh yeah, this is the Detroit Symphony, just absolutely killing it. going that is crazy i need to listen to that whole piece because that's or like i need to also see the score to it because wow that seems hard it's nuts yeah <laughs> all right um this is a piece that i found out about from watching everything everywhere all at once the film um, and i think they sampled this from it because i'm pretty sure this came out before this is from um, um, the movie called Kajillionaire, and the music's by Emil Moseri. We'll just start it out. Yeah, this definitely sounds familiar. So Emil Moseri is from New York and he currently lives in LA and he's most well known for the film score Minari. I haven't watched it but I mean if he's writing this I'm sure it's amazing, at least the music. Those octaves are chilling. I think there's also something that I really enjoy when there's like choirs or vocalists, but it's not, it's never words, it's just sounds. Mm -hmm. Like they're just using voice as an instrument, not as like a way of speaking, I guess. And I think it just makes it so like ethereal and so much more like expansive in terms of the orchestration as a whole. I also can't really tell what kind of vowel they're using because especially the higher voice is just, that timbre is crazy cool. Yeah, because I, it, like, it's like, it feels like, oh, but also like they have like, yeah. <laughs> it's like sharp when they start. Right. It's so cool. And so, um, Moseri completed a six-month residency at the LA venue Zebulon, and he's now working on the score to the film Mr. and Mrs. Smith. So you might see that ads for that coming out sooner than later. Um, but I, I noted that whatever this genre of music is might be my favorite, but I don't know what it would be called. It definitely feels very minimalist, which I also tickles my fancy a lot. <laughs> and to those of you out there who enjoy composing too, it's crazy. Like, especially my journey right now is like, oh, I have this huge idea for sound. I need to write a lot of notes. 
but that's just not how it works. Mm. Like the more simple the line, the more simple the harmony that actually, I don't know, to me, the more in-depth it can sound to her, and it's actually like reaching towards what you want to hear. I was recently, I was... oh sorry, you go, you go. Oh no, you're good. I, I was just gonna say, I feel like every time I'm given more limitations, I feel like I can be more creative. Especially in terms of, like you said, when there are too many notes, sometimes it's difficult to narrow it down and get something of substance in there. And I think that's actually a really good point. Um, I was, there's a piece that I've been listening to a lot that I will definitely put on here soon called Flos Campi. I probably butchered that too, but it's by Vaughn Williams. And I'll put it on here soon, but it's, it's crazy. It's like a small orchestra small ensemble and a viola solo with a chorus awesome that's pretty sweet okay finally yours so this is from Ravel's piano concerto in g major this is the second movement um, this recording is with uh, Yuja Wang, the Queen, a soloist conducted by Lionel Bongiur. Um, orchestra is Academia Nationale di Santa Cecilia. Um, and this is probably one of my top three all-time favorite pieces. Um, I love Ravel. Um, he, impressionist music and minimalist are probably two of my faves, but he's my favorite impressionistic composer, even though he did not like that term. Uh, he and WC, um, even though they're attributed the fathers of this movement, did not like it. Um, but Ravel also lived a really fascinating life, and uh, his, his discography is amazing. Um, he has a biography written by Madeline Goss called Bolero, The Life of Maurice Ravel, which I would highly recommend any musician read. I think it's fantastic. Um, but as you're about to hear, uh, this is probably one of the pieces I return to the most. Uh, when I'm getting frustrated with music, I think the English horn solo in this just really reminds me why I'm doing what I'm doing. And the stuff that's written for English horn is, I mean, we've lucked out so much. <laughs> um, but the first iteration of the melody that you're hearing right now is, um, at the beginning, is introduced by solo piano, just piano alone. Um, and it just keeps unfolding throughout the movement. And I think that the English one, once it takes it over, just will break every heart. <laughs> I found myself, especially recently, finding certain pieces in music, like certain sections of it, and just wishing they were longer. I know. <laughs> and in a conducting standpoint, I struggle because I slow down during them because I, it's just so beautiful. Like, how could I ever want to finish that part of it? But that's not how music works. So, gotta keep pushing. <laughs> And unfortunately, some of us have to use our air. <laughs> but I'd fall out of a chair to play this. I don't care. 
Did it fall onto a piano? Open your chin again. Yeah, I'd do it. <laughs> it also just gives Ravel the like high end of the piano he uses. Mm-hmm. Just so delicate. Like river like flowing. I just love how he uses, even though this is a piano concerto, it's the way he uses it as an accompaniment uh, instrument too, is just breathtaking. I think that's something that I'm learning to appreciate is when concertos, the primary instruments, so say it's a piano concerto, where the piano would also float in and out of being the soloist. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Um, that was lovely talking to you about all this. Oh my goodness, thank you so much for having me. It was joy. All right. Well, that was the wonderful musician, Natalie Johnson. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Tonal Identities and enjoy the rest of your morning, afternoon, and evening.